0: Parsha's Pinchas has 168 verses. It's the second longest Parsha in the Torah. It's got 10 mitzvos. And most of those mitzvot relate to sacrifices, specifically those on holidays and festivals. And the Parsha covers all kinds of topics. It begins with the aftershocks of Pinchas's zealotry at the end of last week's Parsha. Moses gets to see the land, but not enter it. We read about the succession plan of Moses, the plan for dividing up the land once the conquest of Canaan is complete. And there's another census of adult army age males. The parsha begins, Hashem spoke to Moses saying, Pimchas, the son of Elazar, the son of Aaron, the Kohain, he turned back my wrath from upon the children of Israel when he zealously avenged my vengeance amongst them, so I did not consume the children of Israel in my vengeance. During the episode at the end of the last week's parsha, when we read about the very public desecration of God's name, When one of the princes of the Jewish people took one of the princesses of the Moabites and in a very public fashion was sinning, Pinchas ended the wrath and he took God's vengeance when he zealously killed them too and stopped the plague that had erupted. And now Pinchas is given the plaudits and the reward for his Actions Now, it's interesting. Rashi tells us that he is attributed not just to his father, son of Elazar, the son of Aaron the Kohain. Rashi tells us we know Aaron was a man of peace. And his action, while it may have looked like an action of violence, the truth is it was rooted in peace. It was him acting as the grandson of Aaron. So what's his reward? Therefore, say, behold, I should give him my covenant of Now, it's interesting. Rashi tells us that there's two kinds of vengeance. This is a vengeance where Pinchas is acting as the emissary of God. He is avenging God's vengeance, and therefore it's a mitzvah, and he is doing something to benefit the people, and he is given reward. God really should have had this act of vengeance, and Pinchas did it for him. And we see that in, in in Jewish literature, the concept of vengeance, of course, is prohibited. One of the prohibitions we read about in Leviticus 19 is not to take revenge and not to act in violent ways. Yet we see that some kinds of vengeance, some acts of violence are indeed lauded. And that is specifically when someone is so consumed with rage at the spectacle of God's name being besmirched, of God's name being desecrated, and takes decisive action. The Talmud tells us in the book of Yoma that every Torah scholar who does not avenge like a snake, like a serpent, is not a true Torah scholar. That doesn't mean that someone acts in a petty way, taking revenge at those who slighted him. Rather, it means that this is someone who's so connected to God, so cleaving to goodness, and is so incompatible and revolted with evil that he right away takes decisive action. It's almost like there's reflexive love of God that Pinchas demonstrated, and that we're told in the Talmud, it has to be present in every true Torah scholar. In fact, this verse, when we talk about Pinchas and his actions, is actually recited at every bris, at every circumcision ceremony, because a circumcision, of course, is the initial bonds of love, between God and the Jewish people and the Jewish baby, and that therefore the circumcision is in effect step one of this bond, of this unity between a Jew and God, and Pinchas, he represents the ultimate objective. He's not step one, but he's the ultimate manifestation, and this act of vengeance of Pinchas is the ultimate manifestation of someone who is so connected to God, who cleaves to God so tightly, and therefore acts in this manner. And Pinchas' reward is that he gets a covenant of peace. So what exactly does that mean? We have a few different interpretations here by the commentaries. Rashi tells us, even though Pinchas was a grandson of Aaron, he wasn't a Kohen. Because when Aaron was consecrated as a Kohen, it was Aaron and his four sons, and only the future grandsons, i.e. the sons born from those four sons, who were born post the consecration post the anointment. Pinchas was already alive at the time, and because he was a grandson, not a son of Aaron, he was not anointed with the rest of his uncles and his grandfather, and therefore he was not a coin. So it's an amazing thing. For 40 years, Pinchas was watching his brothers, his cousins, his father, his uncle, doing work in the tabernacle as Kohanim, as priests, but he was not a Kohen. But here, as a result of this action, he was made into a Kohen. He was given the covenant of eternal priesthood. That's what Rashi tells us. The other commentaries add that there's additional blessings given to Pinchas, namely that his descendants were the high priests in the first temple era. For the duration of the 400 plus years of the first temple era, all the high priests were descendants of Pinchas, and that is the eternal covenant of, uh, of priesthood. In addition, one of the commentaries, the Sforno, he invokes the Midrash. The Midrash tells us that Pinchas had an inordinately long life. In fact, the Midrash tells us that Elijah, that very important figure in Jewish history at the end of the First Temple era, he is actually none other than Pinchas. Does that mean he's a reincarnation of Pinchas or he's actually the same person operating under a different name? Is maybe a discussion we could have. But clearly we know that Pinchas lived for many centuries and it seems at least plausible, according to some of the opinions, that he is still alive today in some way or another. Now that idea that someone doesn't die and still lives is found in the Talmud and other Jewish literature. For example, it says Moses didn't die, even though the Torah says he did, Jacob didn't die, even though the Torah says that he did, and that is mostly understood on a spiritual level, that the spiritual death that happens typically did not apply to Moses, to to Jacob, etc. But it seems like with Pinchas, when it talks about him having a very long life, it's actually understood literally, and maybe even the fact that he is still alive today – In some way, in some shape, in some capacity, that is also uh, found in the sources. Now, it's interesting, the last word of this verse, verse 12, I give him my covenant of peace, my b'riti shalom, the vav, which is the third letter of the four-letter word shalom. If you look in a Torah scroll, it's actually cut in half. And we've talked about this in the past, there's some letters in the Torah that are bigger, some that are smaller, and here we see also another unusual thing, that the Vav in the word Shalom is cut in half, which could be read, says the Talmud, as Shalem, which means complete. And what this is hinting at is the idea that even though Pinchas made it to a Kohen, he has to be Shalem, he has to be complete, a Kohen who is a Balmum, who has a blemish, who is missing some sort of a physical attribute, someone like that, cannot be a valid coin. That's a idea, of course, we saw already earlier in the book of Leviticus in Parshas Amar. So here we we see that Pimchas is given his reward. He gets a covenant of peace. He gets the covenant of eternal priesthood. Because he took vengeance for his God and he atoned for the children of Israel, he stopped the plague at 24,000. And then in verse 14, it goes on to list the people that Pinchas killed. The name of the slain Israelite man was Zimri, the son of Salu, and he was the leader of the house of Shimon. And the name of the slain Midianite princess was Kazbi, the daughter of was one of the kings of Midian. Now, interestingly, Zimri, this head of the tribe of Midian, he elsewhere is called Shlumiel, which some have suggested that the old uh, Yiddish barb, when someone is called a Shlomiel, when they're not put together, actually comes from Zimri and his action and how he died. He is the ultimate Shlomiel. Now, why does the Torah need to tell us the names of the people that Pinchas avenged? Zimri was the head of the tribe of Shimon. Kazbi, she was the princess of Midian. So Rashi tells us a few reasons. First of all, whenever it attributes the righteousness of the tzaddik it has to also attribute the wickedness of the wicked. That's one idea. But in addition, Rashi tells us that it gives us the pedigree, the stature of Zimri to increase, to augment the praise for Pinchas. Even though Zimri was a very important figure, he was the head of a tribe, And you would think that maybe Pinchas would think twice before he takes decisive action in avenging the vengeance of God and stopping the desecration of God's name. Yet, nonetheless, Pinchas did not stop for a second, and therefore his praise is augmented when we find out who was the person that he killed. Now in addition, Rashi tells us that we're told that Cosby, the woman, was she was the princess of Midian, and that shows us the hatred of the Midianites that even a princess, even she was not spared of this mission to try to get the Jewish people to sin and to behave with harlotry towards the Jewish people. Now, right after we are given the reward for the hero, there is punishment for the perpetrators, namely the Midianites. And God spoke to Moses saying, harass the Midianites, smite them, for they harassed you through their conspiracy when they conspired against you in the matter of Peor and the matter of Cazbi, the daughter of the leader of Midian, their sister who was slain on the day of the plague in the matter of Peor." These people, the Midianites, they caused the Jewish people to sin, they caused the concomitant plague, and consequently we're given instruction by God to harass them and to wage war with them and to smite them. Now, all the commentaries ask the question, well, there were two co-conspirators with this plot, with this conspiracy to get the Jewish people to sin. Of course, there was the Midianites, but it was also the Moabites. So how come God is telling Moses to go wage war with the Midianites but not with the Moabites. So we found a few answers here. Rashi tells us that there's a very important figure who's going to emerge from the Moabites, namely Ruth. And because Ruth is going to be a descendant of the Moabites, she therefore saves the entire nation of Moab, and therefore they are not touched. And that shows you, of course, the power of one individual. Ruth, just as an individual, one single woman, she spared the entire Moabite nation from suffering the wrath and the war of the Jewish people. The Ramban offers two different answers. He says there's an important distinction between the Moabites and the Midianites in their plot, in their conspiracy against the Jewish people. The Jewish people, they were primed to go attack the Moabites. So the Moabites, they just wanted to defend themselves. But the Midianites, they had no business intervening in the war or the potential war that was about to happen between the Jews the Jews. And the Moabites and the fact that they intervened in a war that really was not their fight, therefore they are guilty and they have to be punished as a result. A second answer that the Rabban suggests is that the land of Moab and Ammon, that was given as an inheritance to Lot. And because Lot was someone who befriended and aided Abraham, therefore his land, namely the land of the Moabites was untouched by the Jewish people and they only attacked the Midianites. Chapter 26 begins with a census. It was after the plague, Hashem spoke to Moses and to Elazar, son of Aaron, the Kohen, of course, Aaron already passed away, saying, take a census of the entire assembly of the children of Israel from 20 years and up. According to the father's households, everyone who goes out to the legion in Israel, all the war ready, the army age males from 20 and up, they should be counted according to their families. Now, why is there another census now? Rashi tells us that this is at the end of Moses' life, and therefore, when he was given the charge, the mandate to watch the Jewish people, he counted them, and now that he's about to die and return his flock, he's going to count them to make sure that he's returning the right amount. And in addition, Rashi tells us that this is comparable to a shepherd when a batch of wolves descended upon his flock and killed a whole bunch of sheep, and now he wants to count to find out how many are left over. Similarly, we just had the plague of the episode of the Moabites, and therefore there is another census that happens now in the plains of Moab. So it goes through the 12 tribes. It doesn't count the tribe of Levi together with the rest of The Jewish people counts them subsequently, and there's a few interesting things here in this counting. So first of all, the way the families are counted, they're counted as per the families, not the general tribes, but the families within those tribes, namely the people that descended with Jacob to Egypt. When Jacob descended to Egypt to go join Joseph, he brought, of course, his sons and his grandchildren. And the names of those grandchildren, they established families within the tribes and therefore they're counted specifically according to the families within the tribes so for example ruven is the firstborn of israel we read in verse five the sons of ruven are chanoch and his family is the chanochite family and palu the paloite family etc and goes through the tribes and the names of the families And the total count of the people within each tribe. Now, it's interesting. Rashi in verse 5 tells us that if you read the names of the families, it doesn't just say, this is the family name. It adds. It's, it's Palu, the Paluite family. And the way it reads in Hebrew is that it adds a He, the letter He at the beginning of each family name, and it adds a letter Yud at the end of each family name. And the letter Yud and the letter He together make up the name of God. And therefore, the message here is that some people would question, you know, is this really the family of this Jewish individual? After all, this nation was enslaved to Egypt. And Egypt had total dominion over the bodies of the Jewish people, of their Jewish slaves. Wouldn't you imagine that they also would take liberties with their wives? So who's to say that this is really this family or this tribe's children, maybe the woman was raped by the Egyptian overlord, and maybe it's really his children. And therefore, God says, you know what? I'm going to take my name, the letter Yud, the letter hey, the letters that spell out my name, and I'm going to sandwich the family between those two letters to give my stamp of approval that I testify that these really are the children of their father. So it goes through the family of Ruvain, the family of Shimon, It goes through the family of God, and this is all done in the order of the way that families, the tribes, were encamped around the tabernacle. In verse 11, we read something important, and that is that it goes on a side tangent to tell us that the sons of Korach did not die, because it mentions from the tribe of Reuben, it mentions the people that did conspire against Moses and Aaron, Dathan and Aviram, And therefore, once it's talking about the rebels in the Korach Rebellion, it mentions that the sons of Korach did not die. And Rashi tells us that they had a feeling, a fluttering feeling of repentance, and therefore they were spared at the very last second. Now, Rashi asks an interesting question. Rashi points out that there's 70 souls that descended to Egypt with Jacob, and these 70 individuals make up the families that are being counted right now. But some of the families are missing. There's seven individuals who descended down to Egypt with Jacob that are not mentioned here as fathers of families amongst the tribes of Israel. And Rashi tells us that when Aaron died, temporarily, the clouds of glory that had shielded the nation parted, and the Canaanites came and attacked them. And there were certain families amongst the Jewish people that decided to retreat and head back to Egypt. They were terrified of the Canaanites, and they fled to Egypt. And Moses instructed the sons of Levi to go ch- chase them down. And there was a standoff, and there was a battle, and seven families perished in this showdown. And even amongst the Levites who came to pursue them, four families were missing as well. That's Rashi tells us, quoting from the Talmud in the Jerusalem Talmud. And then he quotes the Midrash Tanchuma that suggests that when the 24,000 people died of the plague at the end of last week's Parsha, maybe that included these families. But then he says, no, it seems like that the only people that died from the plague of Bilam in the end of last week's Parsha were all from the tribe of Shimon. So it goes through the families here, the, the tribe of, of God, the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Yesachar, And there's a lot of commentary here. We're not going to go through it all, but the commentary talks about the names and what they represent. Of course, whenever we have the Torah listing ideas or counts that seem to be irrelevant, seems to not add much novelty. You look at the commentaries and, of course, they fill us in with the backstory and the insights uh, behind each word, of course. And then we read about the tribes of Menashe and Ephraim and it stops to tell us about an individual named Tzlavchad who had no sons and only daughters and the names of those five daughters are listed and they of course are going to play an important part subsequently in the Parsha. Now one other really interesting note here is the tribes of Benjamin and the tribe of Dan. Benjamin had ten sons and Dan had only one son and in fact his son Hushim was deaf. Yet now, many years later, we compare the size of the tribes of Benjamin versus the size of the tribe of Dan. Benjamin's tribe numbered 45,600, but the tribe of Dan numbered 64,400. It's an interesting idea that even though Benjamin had 10 sons to kickstart it, and Dan had only one son who was also deaf, now, many years later, it's interesting to note that Dan's tribe was much bigger than Benjamin's tribe. Even though Benjamin maybe had the big head start, Dan caught up and surpassed and leapfrogged Benjamin in the size of the tribe. So it goes through all the names of the, of the families and the 12 tribes. And finally, we have the total, the total tally. It's, 601,730, which is almost exactly the number that we had at the beginning of the 40 years. But then it goes on to tell us that when the first count happened under the auspices of Moses and Aaron, not a single person overlapped here with the exception of Joshua and Caleb. Those were the only two people that overlapped because everyone else had passed. And like we spoke about previously, the entire generation of The people that witnessed and participated in the sin of the spies, they were all filtered out. Now, at the end of the 40 years, it's an entire new crop, and the people in this count are not included in the people in that count. And then it counts the Levites, and then it tells us, Hashem is saying, "...to these shall the land be divided as an inheritance according to the number of names. For the numerous one you shall increase that inheritance, and for the fewer ones you shall lessen its inheritance." each one according to its count shall his inheritance be given, only by lot shall the land be divided. So this is an interesting thing. This is the families that are going to make up the division of the land and it's going to be in two ways. We're told the numerous one will get a lot of inheritance and the fewer ones will get less inheritance, yet we're told subsequently that it's going to be done by lottery. So which way will it be? Will it be based upon the population size or will it be based upon the lottery? And Rashi tells us that really it was based upon both. And the way it breaks down is that each tribe was given an allotment of land that had the same monetary value, but not necessarily the same size. Of course, if you have a piece of land, where it's located matters a lot, especially in an agri- agrarian society. Certain places are, are more productive and therefore the more valuable based upon acreage. So the way it ended up was that all tribes were given the same monetary value in land but not the same size. And Rashi also tells us that the division was done by a lottery and each one of the tribes would pull out uh, from a hat the uh, the name of the tribe and the name of that particular piece of land that was apportioned to that particular tribe. And then he goes on to count the Levites and the various Levite families. And the chapter concludes... These are the ones counted by Moses and Eliza, the Kohen, who counted the children of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan near Jericho. And of these, there was no man of those counted by Moses and Aaron, the Kohen, who counted the children of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. Rashi points out that only the men were not overlapping in these two counts, but the women, because they did not sin in the sin of the spies, Therefore, they were not condemned to die like the men who did participate in the sin of the spies. And Rashi tells us a very deep idea. The reason why the women did not sin in the sin of the spies was because they really beloved the land of Israel. The men said, let us go back to Egypt. And the women, all they wanted was to have a portion in the land of Israel. And that's why Rashi tells us that the next story that we're told In chapter 27 is the story of the daughters of Slavchad. They're going to make a pitch. They're going to make an appeal to Moses to have a portion of the land of Israel. And again, that's the juxtaposition where the men who did not want to go to the land of Israel, they died and here we see the women. They wanted to go and they made a valiant request and and an appeal to get a portion in the land. And you know, people say, without obviously any real knowledge that the Torah does not value women as much as they do men. And here we see the exact opposite. We're told that the men, they sinned, they didn't value the land of Israel, whereas the women, they did not sin, and therefore they did not die, and they always beloved the land of Israel. Chapter 27 begins with the story of the daughters of Slavchad, The daughters of Slavchad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Mahir, the son of Manasseh, of the families of Benasha, son of Joseph, they approached Moses and they asked the following question. Our father died in the wilderness. He was not among the assembly that was gathering at Hashem in the assembly of Korach. He wasn't part of that rebellion. He died with his own sin, but he had no sons. And he only had the five daughters. Why should the name of our father be omitted from among his family? Because he had no son. Can we, the daughters, inherit our father's portion in the land of Israel. Moses didn't know the answer, and he brought their claim to God. Now, it's interesting, and this is a theme, of course, we see throughout the whole Torah, these women, the daughters of Slavchad, are attributed all the way back to Joseph. The daughters of Slavchad, the son of Khefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Macha, the son of Menashe, the son of Joseph. And whenever there is an attribution all the way back to an antecedent, what the Torah is indicating is that there's an intimate connection between the behavior of the descendant and the character of the antecedent. And Rashi tells us we know Joseph was someone who loved the land of Israel, because after all, towards the end of his life, he made the request to be buried in the land of Israel. And we see that that same love of the land was manifested in his daughters, in his, in his descendants. They too wanted a portion ...in the land of Israel. And they tell Moses, you know, our father died with his sin. He wasn't part of the rebellion. He didn't cause other people to sin. The Talmud brings a debate who exactly was... ...Selavchad, according to Rabbi Tiva, He was the one who gathered the twigs on Shabbos. According to Rabbi Shimon, he was one of the people who... ...after the sin of the spies, decided to go marching... ...brazenly into the land of Israel. But regardless, he wasn't one of the main sinners in the story. And therefore... Their request did not lose any credibility. His father, Their their father was not one of the the worst sinners. He died with his own sin, but not one that caused other people to sin and not part of the rebellion of, of Korach. Now, it's interesting. Rashi tells us that Moses did not know the answer. He didn't know what would happen if a father dies, leaves no sons, only daughters, who gets his inheritance. Why did Moses forget this law? A very powerful idea, Rashi tells us. Many parashas ago, Moses had assembled, based upon the advice of his father, Lord Jethro, a hierarchy that the more simple questions are answered by the leaders of 10 and the more advanced questions go to the leaders of 50, leaders of 100, etc., until eventually the most, most difficult questions come to Moses. And Moses himself said, the difficult questions come to me. And therefore, our sages point out that Moses had a little bit of hubris, a little bit of haughtiness that he said, oh, I'll answer the most difficult questions. Really? You'll answer the most difficult questions? You'll find out that there's a question that's going to be asked that's maybe even a rudimentary question. After all, how often does that happen? All the time, people have daughters and no sons. And therefore, Moses is almost like punished to put him back in his place to say, Now, you don't know everything, some questions, you indeed don't know the correct answer. So Moses turns to God and asks God this question, and God responded that, yes, indeed, there is merit to the claim of the daughters of Slavchad. you give them the inheritance of their father among his brothers. And indeed, it lists the laws, if a man dies, he has no sons then the inheritance goes to his daughter. If he has no daughters either, it goes to his brothers. If he has no brothers, it goes to his father. If his father had passed, then it goes to his uncles, etc. And it keeps on branching out to more and more distant relatives as you move further away from his children and from his immediate family. Now, right away, the Torah pivots to a separate discussion. Hashem said to Moses, go up to this mountain, and see the land that I've given to the children of Israel. So immediately juxtaposed to the story of the daughters of of Tzlavcha, they wanted a portion of the land. Moses is told to ascend a mountain that's right outside the border of the land of Israel. See it, but you can't go in. You shall see it, and you shall be gathered unto your people. You too, as Aaron, your brother, was gathered, and you're going to pass away before you have the opportunity to cross the Jordan. But I'll give you the opportunity to see... The land, and again, it's reiterated the reason why Moses and Aaron died because you rebelled against my word in the wilderness of sin, the assembly of strife to sanctify me at the water before their eyes. And this is what we spoke about a few weeks ago, where Moses hit the rock and instead of speaking to it, and as a result of that sin, him and Aaron were condemned to die and not to cross over the Jordan and enter the land. And Rashi tells us why this actually appears over here. And he says that when God told Moses, you go convey this message to the daughters of Slavchad, that they are going to acquire the land, Moses said, well, God's making me in charge of deciding who gets the land. Maybe indeed that decree was annulled and I myself can enter. And therefore God responded, no, my decree is still standing, but I will let you go witness to go see the land. Alternatively, once Moses entered the portion on the east bank of the Jordan, that's going to be occupied by the tribes of Gad and Ruvain, we'll read about in a little bit, that the tribes of Gad and Ruvain are going to make their permanent dwelling on the eastern side of the Jordan. That's going to be annexed to the greater land of Israel. So Moses said, well, maybe once I enter this, that shows that the decree was nullified. And again, God told him, no, you will not be able to enter the land of Israel proper, even though you're entering the land that is annexed, that is adjacent to the land of Israel. So Moses is going to go up and see and visualize the land, but he's not going to enter it. Now, the Talmud tells us that why did Moses want to go into the land of Israel so desperately? And this is a theme that's going to appear again and again in the book of Deuteronomy, but we know that Moses was desperate to enter the land. Did he really want to eat its fruits so badly? And the answer is, says the Talmud, that he wanted to fulfill the mitzvot that can only be fulfilled in the land of Israel. And it seems like from the commentaries that had Moses been at the helm of the Jewish people when they conquered the land of Israel, they would never have had the ability to be expelled from the land. Whatever Moses himself did can never be undone. Now, there's an interesting idea that Moses witnessed, so to speak. He saw, he visualized the land of Israel. He didn't actually conquer it. He didn't conquer the land, but it's almost as if he conquered the atmosphere. He conquered the airspace above the land. And my grandfather was fond of saying this idea in the name of his brother-in-law, the Talmud tells us that the air of the land of Israel makes someone wise. A very unusual teaching in the book of Bavar Basra in the Talmud. The avira de Aramachim, the atmosphere, the air, the airspace of the land of Israel makes someone wise. What does that mean? So he suggested that Moses, he was the one who conquered the airspace, the atmosphere of the land of Israel. And therefore it has the eternal power of making someone wise. Whereas the land of Israel was conquered by Joshua. Moses, of course, is successor, but not quite Moses, and therefore does not have that same eternal powers. Now, Rashi also tells us an interesting point, that whenever it mentions the death of Moses and Aaron, it mentions the sin that caused their death, namely the sin of hitting the rock as opposed to talking to it. Now, you may think that that is derogatory. Why are we invoking the sin of Moses and Aaron so frequently. But Rashi tells us that no, the opposite is true. It's a praise, because it mentions this sin to tell you that this sin and this sin exclusively, there was no other sin that could have mandated that Moses and Aaron die. After Moses knew definitively that he's not going to enter the land of Israel, he makes a request of God to provide for him a successor. And this is a very unusual verse. It's the exact opposite of what we usually read. Instead of, V'edaber Hashem el-Moshe God spoke to Moses saying it's the opposite. V'edaber Moshe el-Hashem Moses spoke to God saying, and he made a request, May Hashem, God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the assembly who shall go out before them, shall come in before them, who shall take them out and bring them in, and let the assembly of Hashem, not be like a sheep that have no shepherd. Moses is asking God for a replacement, a leader to fill in his shoes and to take the Jewish people to their next step and lead them in their conquest of the land. Now, it's interesting. Moses calls God as the God of the spirit of all flesh. And Rashi explains the significance of this title for this particular request. God, of course, knows the character and the unique eccentricities of each individual person. Everyone's different. And therefore, a leader has to be someone that can relate to that, that can contend and suffer and bear the yoke of each individual and each one with her own eccentricities. That's what it means to be a Jewish leader. And we see this on both sides. We see Moses, typically, when... You know, we have in, in, let's say, in America, they say that the first term of a president is to try to get elected to the second term. And the second term is to build their legacy. Nowhere is there a mention of the people. And here we see what the archetype of a Jewish leader is. A Jewish leader is like Moses. Moses, at the end of his life, what's he worried about? He's worried about the people. And who does he want to be appointed? Someone that can suffer, that can bear the yoke of the people each one according to their eccentricities. Now Rashi tells us, quoting from the Midrash, that Moses really had a candidate in mind, namely his own sons. And the Midrash records the dialogue. God said to him, quoting a verse in, in Proverbs, he who tends a fig tree will enjoy its fruits. What it means is your sons says God to Moses. They sat by themselves. They weren't occupied in in Torah. But Joshua, he served you and gave you honor. He would come early and leave late from the house of scholarship. He would arrange the benches and roll out the mats. Since he served you with all his strength, since he was a very young person, he is worthy to lead Israel. And therefore, take Joshua, the son of Nun, In order to fulfill the verse, he who tends a fig tree will enjoy its fruits. Moses thought that his children were fit for the job. And you know what? I'm sure they were great candidates. But God said to Moses, no, Joshua is worthier. He never stopped studying. He never stopped tending to you and learning from you. And according to you honor, he was the first in the door and last to leave. He would even take upon himself the responsibility of arranging the table and chairs for the academy. And this is the requirement of a great leader. A great leader has to be someone who's selfless. A great leader cannot be caught up with his own honor, his own dignity. Oh, this is beneath me. I can't arrange the tables and the benches. A great leader is someone who is totally committed to his constituents. Joshua did the jobs that no one else wanted to do. This shows, of course, humility, and that he did not view himself as someone worthy of honor, and thereby refraining from doing those things that were beneath him. He did whatever it was that needed to be done, and such a selfless person is a great candidate to lead the nation. So Hashem said to Moses, Take for yourself Joshua, son of Nun, a man in whom there is a spirit, and lean your hand upon him. Very interesting Rashi here. What does it mean, take him? You have to convince him. You have to court him. He doesn't want the job like Moses. Moses, of course, spent seven days arguing with God. In the beginning of Exodus, Moses didn't want the responsibility. He didn't want the role. Similarly, Joshua, in that same mold, he needed to be courted. He needed to be wooed to take the job. And God tells Moses, place your hand upon him. And Rashi explains what that means is, give him an appointment even in your lifetime. Because if you only appoint him to take over after you pass, then the people are not going to respect him. They'll say, well, if you were really the successor, then you should have made some noise. You should have done something even in Moses' life. This is a fascinating idea. It shows us maybe what a difficult nation it is to lead. Had Moses not given Joshua an important role in Moses' lifetime, the nation would have rejected Joshua. They're very hard people to reign in. Even someone like Joshua, hand-selected by God, Disciple par excellence of Moses, the designee of Moses, had he not had an official capacity in Moses' lifetime, he would not have been accepted. Place your hand upon him, and you should stand him before laws of the Cohen before the entire assembly, and then command him before their eyes. Make it clear to everyone that he is your successor. And Moses did even more than he was asked. Moses did as he commanded him. He took Joshua and stood him before Allah, of the Cohen before the entire assembly. He leaned his hands upon him and commanded him as Hashem had spoken through Moses. God told Moses, place your hand upon him. Moses did it even more. He placed both his hands upon him and commissioned him as he was instructed by God. Now Moses' support and strengthening of Joshua continued for the duration of his lifetime and it's going to intensify at the very end of Moses' life in the book of Deuteronomy. Chapter 28, the final chapter of the Parsha, deals exclusively with sacrifices, but specifically the sacrifices that are unique to festivals, to days of importance, to, to holidays and special days throughout the year. And it begins, Hashem spoke to Moses saying, Command the children of Israel and say to them, My offering, my food and my fires, my satisfying aroma... And it begins with the Tammet offering, the continual daily offering every day. Once the tabernacle was erected for hundreds of years, you have one lamb in the morning and one lamb is sacrificed in the afternoon. And those are the bookends of all the sacrifices of that day. The first sacrifice is always the Tammet offering in the morning and the final sacrifice is the Tammid offering of the Afternoon. In fact, our daily prayer cycle is modeled after that. We have the morning prayer corresponding to the morning tamid sacrifice, the afternoon prayer corresponding to the afternoon tamid sacrifice, and the evening prayer is corresponding to the processing of the sacrifices of the day. Now, the Rabban tells us that the reason why this whole chapter comes right after the discussion of the divvying up of the land of Israel. It's because in the wilderness, there were no Musaf sacrifices. The Musaf sacrifices that are done specifically on Shabbos and other festivals, that did not apply in the wilderness only once they enter the land of Israel, the land of Canaan. And therefore, when it talks about the division of the land, it is germane. It's appropriate to talk about the Musaf sacrifices. Now, there's a very interesting midrash, even though the midrash is actually not found in any of the editions of the midrash that we have, but it's brought down by many ancient sources. It brings a very interesting question. The question is, what is the one verse that encapsulates all of Torah? Of course, in the Torah, there's thousands of verses, 5,845 verses. But what are the one verse, what's the one verse that really includes it all? That was a debate brought amongst the sages. And one of the opinions says, well, the first verse of the Shema, Shema Yisrael Hashem Shemachad. Of course, that's Deuteronomy chapter six. But this is the verse that really includes everything. That's the declaration of faith, the pledge of allegiance of the Jewish people. That really includes it all. The second opinion says, no, there's another verse, the verse in Leviticus, 19, you shall love your fellow as yourself. And finally, comes along Ben Pazi, one of the other sages of the Mishniic era, and he finds a third verse. And it's a very unusual one, not one that you would expect. It's verse 4 of chapter 28. The one lamb shall you make in the morning, and the second lamb shall you make in the afternoon. This is the verse that talks about the daily sacrifices that are done with consistency. And the Midrash concludes that everyone seems to agree that the law is indeed, like Ben Pazi, that this is the one verse that includes it all. So, of course, there's a very interesting citation from the Midrash. But I think the, the idea is that this verse is describing the one thing that remains constant every day, no matter what day of the year. There's the first sacrifice in the morning and the second sacrifice in the afternoon. And that consistency, that, that, the idea that we're spiritual beings who need to have a spiritual connection with God. And that is like breathing and eating. It's something you need to do all the time. And that, of course, is manifested by the sacrifices. That really encapsulates all. The Torah is about making, forging a connection between us and God. And this verse really captures it all. That, the idea that The relationship that we have, the spiritual connection that we have with God is something that has to be done all the time with consistency every single day. So it talks about the Tamid, the continual daily sacrifices, and then it moves on to the special sacrifices that are brought on Shabbos. And then we read about the special sacrifices that are brought on Rosh Chodesh on the first day of a Jewish calendar month. And then we read about the special sacrifices that are brought on Pesach, And there's an interesting Rashi here in verse 19. The verse says, You shall offer a fire offering, an elevation offering to Hashem, two young bulls, one ram, and seven male lambs. Rashi tells us that the bulls correspond to Abraham. Of course, one of the most significant events of Abraham's life was when he had those three strangers, those three pagan strangers coming to visit him. And the verse tells us in Genesis Chapter 18, that Abraham ran to the cattle. And therefore, the idea of cattle is always going to evoke the merit of Abraham. Isaac, of course, the most important event of his life was the binding of Isaac. And and that, of course, is represented by the ram whose horns were caught up in the thicket. And Jacob corresponds to the lambs. And that relates to the story of when Jacob was manipulating the lambs as he was contending with his father-in-law, Laban. Then we read about the special sacrifices that are brought on Shavuos and Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And finally, we read about Sukkot and Shemini Atzeris. And Sukkot is unique because every day of the seven days of Sukkot, a different offering is given. So on day one, there's 13 bulls that are offered as sacrifices and day 2, that number drops to 12, and day 3 to 11, and day 4 to 10, and to 9, and to 8, and the final day of Sukkot, there are only 7 bulls. And if you add those tallies together, you have a total of 70 bulls in descending order. Whereas every day of Sukkot, there are 14 daily lambs that are offered as sacrifices for a total of 98 lambs. But that's Constant. That's steady. That's consistent. Every day there are fourteen daily lambs that are offered every day of Sukkot. Rashi tells us that the seventy bulls of the festival of Sukkot correspond to the seventy nations. Of course, this is one of the big themes in Jewish philosophy that there's seventy nations and they correspond to bulls. Very intimidating. And then, of course, the Jewish people we're like the lamb. We're we're, we're vulnerable. But here we see an idea that is presented on Sukkot that, yes, they're mighty bulls, but they're weakening. They're not going to be around forever. Whereas the lambs, they're steady, they're consistent, they're going to be around forever. Now, Y98, Rashi tells us that we're going to see a little bit later on in the book of Deuteronomy, there is a section that talks about the curses that are going to befall our nation in the event that we abandon God and his Torah. If you count the amount of curses, it equals 98. And therefore, the 98 lambs, they're there to repent and to atone and to shield us from the 98 curses of Deuteronomy. Now, the day following Sukkot is what's called Shemini Yatzeres, which is the eighth day, and it's appended to the festival of Sukkot, it's one extra day. Rashi tells us a famous midrash that the Jewish people are so close to God and we have seven days of celebration together and then it's time for us to leave and to separate from God. And God says to us, almost like a king who invited his children to a banquet and they're there for seven days, and the last day the king says to the children, you can't leave me, stay for one more day. And that's the same idea. And Shemitah Sarah says, the eighth day, we've been there for seven days, it's time to leave. And God says, one more day. Now, the obvious question is that, you know, you're just kicking the can down the road. If you have a hard time departing from God, you want to stay for one more day, well, the next day you're going to have the same problem. You're going to stay for that extra day, and then it's going to come time to leave. And then you'll say, well, I can't leave. Let me stay for even another day. So how do you solve the problem? And the answer is, is that the focus of Shmini the focus of this final day, is to cement the relationship so that even when you do leave, it's as if you're still connected, you're still bound together. And of course, today we celebrate what's called Simchat Torah, the celebration of Torah. And of course, nothing embodies the connection that we have with God like the Torah. And even though the festival may go away, the connection is still maintained via us connecting to his Torah. Now, Rashi says another idea here in verse 36 that may be initially counterintuitive. It says that the reason why we have this decreasing in intensity and size of the sacrifices It's a lesson for us in character and how how we're supposed to behave. Suppose you have a guest. The first day, you're supposed to give him big, juicy, succulent steaks. The next day, well, you give him a little bit less of an exciting meal. You give him fish. The next day, you give him something even less. The next day, you give him something even less. Eventually, you're giving him vegetables and it's getting worse and worse as things go on. That's what's insinuated over here with each day the sacrifice is diminishing. It starts off with 13 and goes down to 7. And that's a lesson for us. That's what Rashi tells us. Now, the obvious question is that how is that a good lesson? If you have a guest, maybe you should be giving him something greater every day. It seems to imply that you have a guest who's overstaying his welcome. You want to kick him out. You want to hint to him in a nice way to leave. So you start feeding him with increasingly less tastier foods. So what's the idea over here? So I want to share an idea from my great-grandfather, Rabbi Abraham Grudzinski, whose yard site, the day that he passed away, actually falls down this week, on the 22nd day of Tammuz. He used to say that the idea over here is like this. You know, when you have a guest, someone comes to your house, right away they feel a little bit uncomfortable. They don't necessarily know you. They don't exactly know what to do. They feel a little bit out of place. So right away you start by giving him honor. But the goal is for them to not feel like a guest forever. They should become a little bit more comfortable, more homey in your home. And then for the first day, you give them a really beautiful meal and you put them in the dining room with the fanciest china. But then the, day three, day four, you say, hey, you know what? You're part of the family. You're part of the house. Come eat with us in the kitchen. And that actually is good. Because you're fostering a closeness, a connection, they feel like they're more comfortable, they're more at home, and that's the attitude you're supposed to give to your guests. A very powerful and counterintuitive idea. The parsha concludes: These are what you shall make for Hashem on your appointed festivals, aside from your vows and your free will offerings, besides for the rest of the sacrifices. And Moses said, "The children of Israel, according to everything that Hashem had commanded Moses, Moses went and repeated all these laws to the." Jewish people. That's that. Thank you for listening. My website is RabbiWolby.com. Check out all the various podcasts. The email address is RabbiWolby at gmail.com. Check out our our website, TorchWeb.org. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you so much for your continuous support and listenership and friendship.